Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, August the 1st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. On today's podcast, we look at the news which broke yesterday about Amnesty International Ireland, which has won its challenge to an order made by the Standards in Public Office Commission, or SIPO. That decision raises an awful lot of questions, most obviously about how SIPO came to its flawed conclusion in the first place, but also about how we should monitor and regulate political financing in this country. Today, we discuss some of these issues with Colm O'Gorman of Amnesty, Liz Carolyn of the Transparent Referendum Initiative and our own political editor, Pat Leahy. And towards the end of this podcast, I also asked Colm about his attitude as a survivor of clerical sexual abuse towards the impending visit of Pope Francis this month. I think his answer is uh, well worth sticking around to hear. But first of all, Sippo and Amnesty. Before we play you the discussion, for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, I'll try to give you a, a very quick summary. Last year, Sippo directed Amnesty to return a donation of €137,000 from George Soros's Open Society Foundations. That donation was intended to fund Amnesty's My Body, My Rights campaign, which had the goal of increasing support for a referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment. Sippo told Amnesty to return that money after deciding that the donation was against the rules. Acceptance of the donations from abroad for political purposes is prohibited under the 1997 Electoral Act unless it is from an Irish citizen. Amnesty refused to comply with that order, saying that Sippo was misapplying the law and the matter ultimately went to court. In yesterday's settlement, Sippo accepted that the process leading to the decision had been, and I quote, procedurally flawed. Sippo also repeated its call for the establishment of an electoral commission and legislation to deal with political campaigns financed from outside the state. The Department of Local Government has also said in a statement that plans to establish an electoral commission are now being advanced, with proposals expected to be brought to government in the autumn. So, with all that as the backdrop, I began by asking Colm O'Gorman about what led Sippo back in December 2017 to decide that this donation needed to be handed back. I may be wrong about this, but my impression at the time when this was happening was that Sippo's position was that it was the intent of the donor which was the determining factor in, in coming to that decision. In other words, and they, they said this publicly at the time, I understand it's still on their website, that it was the information provided by the Open Societies Foundation which had led them to make this determination that it fell within the ambit of the... Yeah, indeed. On their, on the, in a statement that they issued on December the 13th of last year that I understand is still on their website, yes, they, they, they said that at the time they made inquiries about the grant that we gave them assurances, the grant warden for political purposes. Sorry, we didn't. We gave them all of the information they needed. They're the regulator. It's not for us to tell the regulator what the outcome, you know, the outcome of their inquiries or investigations. It's for them to decide that. Uh, we gave them all of the information that they needed and we presented our position, the same position we'd articulated for many years about how we believe the act should be applied to civil society organisations. But they then went on to say that the, the, they, had, they had sought and received written confirmation from the donor that the grant was for explicitly political purposes, I think is how they framed it. Uh, I'm very pleased that, that yesterday in the High Court they corrected the public record in that regard. They did not receive any such assurances from the Open Societies Foundation uh, not by any stretch of the imagination could they have suggested that. So have was, they explained how that error, for want of a better word, occurred? No. 
um, um, but it was it was uh, it was a very very serious development from our perspective. Indeed, I mean, it led to a, a rather extraordinary leader article in the in the Irish Times, uh, um, which frankly savaged us for. Uh, saying that we were going to challenge this decision uh, by SIPO and, and, and uh, described it as a very serious, a matter of very serious concern. I mean, from our perspective, we're in a situation where we believed that a state regulator who's meant to be protecting the integrity of our democratic process had made a decision that we believed to both, both be unjust, unreasonable and unlawful, that we believed uh, if it was applied generally to civil society would gravely violate civil society freedoms and would be in breach of Ireland's obligations under international human rights law, would breach the European Convention on Human Rights and the Fundamental Rights Charter of the European Union. Uh, um, it's our job to challenge things like that when they happen. So that statement from SIPO had a very profound impact on some of the analysis of what was happening at the time. Now, of course, all of that has to be understood that it was in a particularly increasingly heated or heating environment as we headed into uh, what was what would then become the referendum on the Eighth Amendment, but it was a it was a it was a difficult time. So we were we were very pleased. It was very important to us um, that that public record be corrected by the Commission yesterday. Pat, there's a lot in the detail of this, but the detail then goes to illustrate, I think, as as Colin has, has, has already suggested, some very broader, important policy issues, probably for this government. And to be fair to Sipo, should say that for a number of years, I think 15 years or more, Sipo is saying that the legislation needs to be looked at in a serious way. And, uh, yeah. and this this particular incident may, may to some extent be an illustration of that, although it strikes me looking at it, it also raises questions about how they handled this particular case as well. Yeah, I mean, there is a question of, of legislative change, and you're right that Sipo have been talking about that for some time. The political system, the legislative system has been very slow to respond to it, but I don't think Sipo should be given... Should be led off the hook of explaining actually what happened here. And yesterday they talked about the process, you know, that the process was flawed. But actually, you know, I think they need to explain uh, that fully. And Columns laid some of that out there uh, as to how they came to, to the decision. But I suppose the wider question is of the intent of our electoral laws and the construct of our electoral laws and how they are applied. The intention of the, the the law as SIPA was originally uh, uh, was originally interpreting it here was to prevent outside influence on the political system here in times of elections and referendums, and they made the judgment that the uh, that the, the the money that Amnesty got from the Open Society F- uh, Foundation was to affect political change, and that that is against. Uh, that, and, and, and they judge that to be against the rules, and that's well for, beyond for understandable. That's we, but that's and that's well beyond the period, however one cares to define it, of actual general of election actual, campaigns the, the or referendum campaign. So, in other words, that's all the time, three hundred sixty-five days a year, every year. Yeah, and and it seems to me that that is a defensible position. And you know, you could have a discussion about whether you know uh, whether outside influence, foreign influence on the political system should be prohibited to that degree or whether it should be just confined to the campaign. Well, uh, Colin's the, making the, the point it's not campaign. just about foreign but outside influence, it's about any, any funding of any yeah, I think, sort. I think, I think two things. First of all, it, it, it of course is not just related to overseas funding. The restrictions are very, very serious restrictions on access to any funding or income for organisations who are involved in advocacy on social justice or any kind of quasi-political issue. So you can't accept an anonymous donation of more than €100, a cash donation of more than €200, or a donation from any source, that includes any source within the island of Ireland or from an Irish citizen, of more than €2,500. Now just have a think about that for a moment. What would those kind of funding restrictions do to, for instance, organisations right now that are, are campaigning for a constitutional right to housing? Shut them down. 
tomorrow. Uh, um, what would that do to any organisation that's advocating for any kind of social change? And it, do, it doesn't just relate, Pat, to organisations like Amnesty. I mean, if you're a, a local residence association and, yeah. you get, and, and you get a donation of more than 100, 100 euros in a year and you're campaigning for a new playground, you are a third party under the definition of this act. I, I, I get that. And we've, we've talked about this before, but I think you need to look at it from the other side as well. Say that if there is to be, yeah, if there is to be no restrictions on this sort of campaigning, then you are looking at then what, what, what would we say? Would if for if, society if, if, to campaign for social justice? Well, if, for instance, if, if, for instance, you know, the Koch brothers are, you know, uh, uh, an American conservative yeah billionaire was to decide that he wanted to assist Irish uh, pro-life organisations to overturn the result of the referendum and to channel $50 million or $100 million into Ireland to over to overturn those, to overturn the result of the re- referendum, campaign for a new referendum, to, to try and block, to lobby politicians to block the legislation that's coming in the autumn. Would we think that's okay? So I answer, think we probably the, wouldn't. The, the answer, the an- well, first of all, we don't know where most of the funding for the particular uh, agenda that you've set out there now has been coming from for a long number of decades. It's fairly clear that it hasn't been coming from, from Ireland, uh, given the lack of support that they, that they have for what is a rather extreme position. Um, and, and, then, and then secondly, the secret here is not to use a sledgehammer to crack a nut. The nut being every single civil society organisation in the country and the hammer being an extraordinary disproportionate act by the state to shut down civil society. Transparency is key here. We absolutely agree that there should be appropriate regulation of all sectors who engage in any kind of political activity. Absolutely. That's why we are fully compliant with the lobbying register. We're very happy to see it. That's why we do everything we can, despite the fact that as a human rights organisation, we're not allowed to be a registered charity in this country because it's not recognised as having a charitable purpose. We find every possible way that we can to to demonstrably and publicly uh, comply with what would be the regulation that would apply if indeed we could be a charity. We believe in transparency. So the secret is that there should be absolute transparency on the sources of funding for all organisations who are working to affect change or engaging with our political system. I think most that, people that, would that, accept that, 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 but there that, probably that, needs to be that, rules and about that, it as hold well. Hold, 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 hold that thought for a it, moment. Sorry, let me say one more thing. And very it should be for a legitimate purpose. So absolute transparency on the source of all funding and it should be used for a legitimate purpose and there should be absolute compliance with all other appropriate regulation and controls and checks and stringent regulation of the kind of the electoral act being applied during elections and referendums. You've been sitting very patiently here and actually you're probably the person who's been thinking the most uh, about this subject over the over over the last year in particular your work during the referendum and continuing continuing now um clearly this legislation isn't fit for purpose at all um and this is this is this incident illustrates it probably better than anything we've seen yeah i mean i think that the technical term would be bonkers like it's just completely not fit for purpose and i think this this case has just thrown that into relief yet again so you know you you mentioned the Cook brothers Um, if an overseas group wanted to come to Ireland and influence the outcome of a referendum Sippo said last week and this is a quote uh, no legislative framework uh, currently exists and um, that allows, you know, that would allow, and so, so this allows foreign actors to influence Irish elec- elections and referendums with potentially significant consequences. And the Interdepartmental Group on Security in Ireland's um, electoral reform said that there was no restriction on foreign-based persons or organisations from using their own money to, to, to act here. 
So what we have is we have these incredibly strict and sometimes onerous restrictions on organisations when it comes to particular types of funding and then an absolute free-for-all when it comes to other types of funding. So we met with SIPA right at the beginning of the campaign when we were trying to make political advertising more transparent and we were saying, what happens if and when we see some dodgy behaviour from overseas or something that looks really questionable? Mm. And they told us the only thing that they can act on is if it was um, a foreign donation, and they talked about the purposes of that donation, to an Irish organization with the explicit purpose of trying to influence the referendum. I said, okay, but let's say, which did happen, you have US organizations who are directly targeting Irish voters with content intended to influence the referendum. There's nothing we can do about it. I said, is that because it's digital? Because this is a challenge that, you know, the, the UK parliament last week said their democracy was in crisis. The, the US is in crisis over this. I'm like, is this, a, is this a digital question? And they basically said that um, an overseas group is able to spend their own money in this country trying to influence directly voting behavior because there are absolutely no rules and no um, implementers of those rules in this country. And we saw that, you know, like uh, CNN, I think, I think RTE covered it as well. You know, they weren't, they weren't, you know, the stellar campaigners that they thought they were, but there was a group of young Americans who came over, covered the country in posters. They were doing digital campaigns as well. They had their stickers. They had fundraised in the US to pay for their Airbnb because they were saving Ireland's babies. Um, and they, you know, said, and they're quoted as saying, well, A, you know, it's like a rock concert. You know, they were having a great time. But B, it turns out none of this is against the law. So in the US, overseas interference in elections is governed by national security legislation. Indeed, there's a few investigations into that very subject going on at the Again, moment. There is. In, 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 indeed, there are. Whereas, you know, we don't, we haven't quite figured out, I think, you know, three things. So one is, um, what are the principles? And this, this, is, this is what Pat was talking about a minute ago. You know, we know that we care about financing, right? We care about the quantity of financing that goes into campaigns and we care about the source of financing that goes into campaigns, right? And we also care about information. We care about the balance of information that citizens have access to. We've all sorts of rules around that. But we also need to care about the quality of information, which I think is something that in this referendum that we've just been subjected to, um, you know, was, was really, really questionable in terms of the quality of information that people, people were able to access. So that's the first thing, the principles. We haven't figured them out. It's a hodgepodge and there's huge areas that aren't covered by existing laws. The second bit is visibility. How do we know what's going on? That means how do we see the campaigns that are happening online, which is what we were trying to address in our campaign. But also, you know, if you are an Irish citizen and you have a ton of money sitting in your bank account, we asked Sipo about this, and you want to spend a million euro of that money on a campaign in this country, you can do that. You don't have to tell anybody you've done it. You don't have to say where the money came from. Uh, you, don't, you, you don't have to talk about your activities in any way. No Irish citizen has the right to know who did what and who spent what in the referendum that we just had. So that like basic level of visibility, which comes down to, to, to transparency. And then there's the enforcement mechanism. And so this is, you know, like the, like it, it is great to see, you know, government talking again yesterday and today about the need for an election commission. It was raised by SIPO. It was raised um, as well by the interdepartmental group last week. This is in the national risk assessments that, you know, we need to think about social media campaigns and things. But the UK has an election commission. They actually have quite a strong one. Uh, the US has all sorts of electoral commissions um, uh, and, and bodies that are enforcing this stuff. That alone isn't, you know, isn't going to be enough. We can't just copy and paste an election commission either. You know, we are, um, aside from Ireland's sort of patchy and really, really out of date legislative framework, 
you know, we're kind of reckoning with that at a time when the rest of the world is reckoning with the fact that the institutions they have been relying on are incapable of responding in particular to digital threats to democracy. So we have a chance now, and I think a really, really exciting chance as a country to sort of leapfrog, right, those... So jump a generation. Jump basically. a generation. Mm. To, to, to skip over, you know, the, 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 the now dysfunctional election commissions that exist in other countries and to think really quite creatively about, you know, what are those principles we care about as a country? And that also includes funding for civil society and for broader a broader space for people to be able to engage and have conversations about issues that matter to them. But what are the principles that we care about voters and voter behaviour and the outcomes of those processes? How do we make sure that the visibility is you know, real time. We should know when people are spending money as they're spending it. You know, um, uh, a campaign group may not wish to tell you that in real time. There are very few suppliers of advertising space in this country. They are going to exist after the referendum where campaign groups are not. Can we have them delivering in real time information about who's paying for that billboard, who's paying for that digital ad, who's paying for that newspaper ad? And then how do we think about this enforcement mechanism so that it's fit for the 21st century? That will probably mean a level of adaptability. Um, like you know, At the moment, a lot of the global conversation is about um, micro-targeted sort of social media and digital ads. But there's a huge undercurrent now of, well, what's happening on closed networks? So I don't know if you saw a week or two ago, uh, WhatsApp had to restrict the number of messages that people could send on in India and in other sure, countries. Because it was leading to lynchings and atrocious behaviour. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, I have friends who were, who were working in Sierra Leone during their election and all of the disinformation was happening um, uh, through WhatsApp, through these networks. And it was ending up literally being parroted back to people on street corners, you know, exact figures. So... And that's, you know, that's the problem in two or three years time here, although we did actually see it during the snow. I don't know if you remember, like, there was the, the stuff up in Tala. Yeah. You know, I saw that on my boyfriend's, you know, uh, stag WhatsApp groups, those videos, two hours before was I was on Twitter. Stag? Is that what no, <laughs> no, it wasn't his stag. Um, uh, you, know, you know, those like the, the lads WhatsApp groups, right? Uh, two hours before it was on Twitter, which was hours before, you know, the Irish Times were writing their things. Half of the stuff was true. Half of it was, you know, photoshopped and kind of this kind of stuff, right? That will infiltrate into our politics, right? What comes after that, we have absolutely no idea. So what's the, institu- what's the institution that we build that can interpret principles and, and respond to them? I, I love the idea of skipping a generation here, Pat, but I just wonder, looking at the Irish political system, if it's capable of taking on the intellectual challenge as well as perhaps building the legislation that's flexible enough to do the kind of things that Liz is talking about. In other words, to, I, to, I to be flexible enough to allow for whatever the next WhatsApp is in three years' time or what happens three years after. I've spoken to people in and around uh, government in the Leinster House uh, about this quite a lot over the last couple of months. I detect little urgency, to be honest, that there is the appetite for the sort of... I mean, this is hard work. Yeah. This is, you know, this is. would... This is tough legislative grind. It will require an Oireachtas committee to disappear into the basement of Leinster House for a couple of months, talk to all the stakeholders, look at the international experience, figure out firstly what they want new legislation to achieve. So the question that we started off with, should it be possible for American billionaires of whatever political uh, of, 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 of whatever political or indeed stripe, Irish billionaires. Are to... to 
seek to influence the political system so, here? Should should that be possible? If yes, no, and, 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 and to formulate the legislation and then to have the sort of electoral commission that is equipped with powers and teeth. But that is tough legislative so work. Well, I don't think it's going to happen well, in the I, I foreseeable future. It also shouldn't happen in the basement. Because when it's in the basement... So the basement's where the committee rooms are, as you know. I've had to run outside <laughs> I, I, to get a bit of signal. I didn't mean it as a there. metaphor. <laughs> no, but but uh, but it is a helpful metaphor because a lot of these conversations are taking place in closed rooms. And in those rooms you have, you know, even, even the members of, of the committee are elected representatives who themselves are consumers of this stuff. And, and who are regulated by the regulator that they might have to yeah. look exactly. at and challenge and question. Mm-hmm. And you have the providers of... Uh, these services who, who are incredibly powerful are in- corporations with very deep pockets and a very significant here, place in the Irish economy and this, a wild idea. this, this so. actually connects back to Colm's earlier point you know we need a counterbalance in those conversations we need civil society we need people who represent voters and the values of voters who are in that room and who are able to be a part of figuring out what those values are that we care about you know so we don't have the kind of the, the consumers and the providers of a product having a conversation on their own when it impacts the rest of us and we're not involved in that conversation. How do we, how do we make sure that organisations are funded, you know, to be able mm. to do that, which kind of links back to what happened in court yesterday? Well, here's a, a wild idea. We don't have to look too far back into our past to work out that we are actually capable through our political system and through a political engagement with civil society to deal with complex convoluted and somewhat divisive I issues. I see what's coming here. Right, so, you know, I mean, the, the committee the committee on the Eighth Amendment did extraordinary work over a number of months. I mean, you know, if anybody wants to look at so-called new politics and actions, go and look at what happened there. I mean, I absolutely believe that the work of that committee was the best example that we've seen in living memory of politics getting to grips with an issue and finding a solid, uh, 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 sensible, evidence-based uh, inquiring way forward. Now, it, it built upon the work of the Citizens' Assembly. You know, we're either serious about protecting our democracy or we're not. And it's all very well and good for people, you, you, you know, to stand on, on soapboxes and shout about foreign money and overseas influence and all the rest of it. If, if, if we're then going to say that, well, actually, this is w- way too complex and we don't believe our political system is serious about it, we're either serious about uh, protecting democracy within this republic or we're not. We're either serious... And that means ensuring that civil society, from the level of the individual to organisations like ours and many smaller organisations, are able to participate in, freely participate in, uh, public and political discourse on the kind of change that's necessary to build the kind of republic that we want, or we're not. And I don't accept that this is unworkable. It's, I mean, one of the things I, w- I was thinking when you it's talked not, about... It's not unworkable. I was, I, let, me, let, me, let, me ju- let me just... I, I get that it's difficult. But I mean, you know, one of the things... I think sometimes technology always makes things a little bit more complicated, but sometimes we have to reduce it back down and recognise that all we're seeing is technology enabling a familiar phenomenon. I mean, Pat, you'll be very familiar with the, with the phenomenon of the, of the photocopied letter dropped through the letterbox of everybody in a constituency on the night before polling with a whole lot of scurrilous lies on it about a candidate in an effort to influence the vote the next day. These kind of tricks have always, have, have always been played. We're just in a different kind of technology. The one good thing, I suppose, with this kind of mass technology is all of that can also be revealed in a different way. It can be evidenced. It can be investigated. People can be held to account. So I, I absolutely agree with Liz. I think we have the most phenomenal opportunity to leapfrog over failures that have happened in other states to get to grips with this and to do it properly. But in order to do that, we have to stop dropping old familiar tropes that we use in unthinking ways. Like, for instance, the idea that because money comes from outside of the country, it's a bad thing. Like, money from outside the country is just money from outside the country. It might be good and it might be bad. Let's assess it 
on the basis of the source of the money, the intention to which it's be applied. But do you think and, it would be okay, using just on the original no, no, question no, about the, the cock, 100, it, billion, 100 million dollars? It, it depends on how it's done and what it's for. If it's being used in a way that's transparent, where it's legitimately used, where the people who are receiving it are subjected to appropriate regulation, where it's absolutely transparent, perhaps not. Because let me put back to the other way. Are you going to argue for the close down of Irish Aid Civil Society Fund and programme? Are you, going to, are you going to say that we should stop investing in civil society in other countries through our Irish aid programme? Because that's what we do. Mm. Ireland does in other countries exactly what the Electoral Act makes illegal here. That- we provide grants to civil society organisations to campaign for and work to force change within their political systems to respect human rights and equality. But I'm not sure, Tom, I'm not just not sure that that debate has taken place. The, the, the discussion between but yourself it, and Pat here about this, this, this there is good reason why other that. countries, yeah. and their legislation as we know from events of the last couple of years probably isn't up to scratch, but why other countries do try to at least minimise um, what they regard as foreign engagement in their electoral and, and political no, process. And I've no issue when it comes down to an engagement in their electoral process, but if we start drawing political so wide that it starts to limit the capacity of organisations or individuals to participate in public or political debate or, di- or discourse or to undercate advocacy that's directed at the political system, we have a huge problem. I mean, and in a way, you know, the fact that this funding from OSF, let's, let's name the trope in the room, the very fact that there's an individual connected, the, fo- the, the, the founder or the funder of that organisation is George Soros. There's a whole load of very mucky stuff around uh, um, how he... Uh, is being targeted and, uh, and uh, anti-Semitism uh, yeah, and various whole, other things. a whole load of all yeah. of that stuff. But mm. actually, the Open Societies Foundation is one of the largest and most respected human rights foundations in the world. There's a whole system of regulation, of governance, of oversight. George Soros doesn't sit in some penthouse in New York and decide where the money is going to go. It happens through a really well-run, clear foundation that's very well governed and that's properly accountable Liz, for what it does. That's an appropriate source of funding for civil society action, provided the organisations that receive it are transparent about what they're doing with it. Well, I mean, I I think we haven't figured this out yet as a country. I, I think instinctively Irish people don't like the idea of um, elections or referendums being determined by people who do not have to live with the consequences of uh, of those I votes. don't think that's a peculiarly Irish feeling. No, I, and, no, and I have no. no difficulty with that either. I think no, regulation of elections and referendums is completely appropriate. And, and when we were doing our project, the thing that we found got most traction, not just with the media, but also with, um, you know, in, in broader conversation, was where we were able to demonstrate that overseas groups were placing ads targeting Irish people. There was all sorts of other things going on, but that was the one that I think really triggered people. Um, but, but I mean, that has to come down to a, a um, figuring out a set of values that we have, a set of principles that can underpin law. Because we, you know, we we have these restrictions in some places and not in other places. Is one too extreme on one end and the other too extreme on the other end? You know, who knows? But how do we figure out those principles and how do we make sure that there is visibility, right? So, you know, if the Koch brothers want to come over and influence a referendum and we decide as a country that that's, you know, that, that that's okay, right? Um, I don't think that we would, <laughs> but if we were to, right? You know, how would Irish people, how would Irish voters react if the leaflet that got through the door, you know, had written on it that where, where the information came from, right? So, like, how can we use, how can we use transparency across the board in order to make sure that, um, you know, that that whatever principles it is that we decide are, you know, um, implemented sort of on the ground in terms of the way people are, are engaging with information. And the other thing I, I I just wonder about is when I look at 
political discourse internationally, not just in Ireland, but particularly around Brexit, for example, and around American electoral politics. A lot of what's defined as politics now doesn't fit within the, the narrow parameters of what would have been regarded as politics in the 1970s when there was certain channels that people could get their message across. It was, there's more than just... The, there's a big difference between the leaflet through the door column with the lie on it and the, the kind of the ecosystem of information or bu- bubbles very often of information within which people live now. And so I wonder whether you can make this distinction, which you're making there, about this is specifically to influence an electoral outcome and this is more about a social movement of some some sort, of of, of whatever kind. I'm not sure if that distinction... I'm just not sure well, that I, distinction but, 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 I, stands, but I think you have yeah. to be then clear about what's a proportionate restriction on... on uh, uh, organizations or individuals who are working for change within their own countries. So what's an appropriate restriction? And you have to think about that very carefully. The electoral acts are not proportionate. They're not reasonable and they don't work. So they don't work, they're not appropriate, and they're completely disproportionate. They will, they would, if they were applied to civil society organizations who advocate on everyday issues in this country in the way that they're written, in the way that Sipo sought to apply them to us, they would shut down no, Irish no, civil you, society you that, and I take that point, and that, you know, that, that point is so well made. That, but, that, but that's I, problematic. But I do wonder, in relation to what but you're saying course, about appropriate restrictions, and also Liz, what, course, Liz, what you're saying yeah. as well about disinformation, but of Who course you can build. But of course you, know? you can build. Of course you can build systems of regulation yeah. that ensure that funding is being used transparently and that people for account are accountable for what they do and how they work. And that so, includes the kind of transparency so that Liz is fa- trying to introduce. Facebook um, uh, distinguish between political ads, which uh, are ads that have, you know, vote for X, vote yes on prop you know, seven or whatever, um, and that are, you know, specifically targeted at voting behaviour and social ads. And so when they were originally thinking about their transparency tools and the efforts that they're doing to make some of that paid for advertising more transparent, they were only planning on focusing on political on political ads, explicitly yep. political ads. They've now accepted that actually, you know, um, advertising in a particular district, which is trying to change behaviour on immigration or which is trying to kind of like stoke resentment, um, should be subjected to the same transparency rules so that everybody is aware of the information environment within which voters are operating. And I think that's something that, you know, we can think about, but we do need this distinction between political and social. I think they both need to have an underpinning of transparency. Where does the money come from for trying to influence behaviour? What are the messages that are out there? We probably do need to distinguish, though, between that and actual paid-for activity, which has the explicit intention of of, of, of voter behaviour. And, that, and that's where SIPO has... I just want to come back to something, right. Colin, because you made the point about... You, we're here in the Irish Times. You made the point about the Irish Times editorial, which obviously you were extremely, unha- extremely unhappy with. Do you think that editorial was... Uh, do you think that the Irish Times was wrong to publish that editorial to take Sippo's word for it, essentially? Because the criticism of Amnesty International Ireland's activities was on the basis of the Sippo statement. I think that we, we, we surely have enough uh, evidence in our relatively recent history in this country of regulators getting things wrong. And um, I think there can be a tendency sometimes, and maybe particularly in a very hot environment when you're heading into a referendum like the referendum on the 8th, as we were at the time, um, for people not to ask some of the questions that they need to ask or to reflect a little bit. And uh, um, that uh, that editorial was, I suppose, from our perspective, troubling for a number of reasons. First of all, it seemed to suggest that challenging um, a regulator on the basis that you believe their decision to be unjust or unlawful was a matter of serious concern. 
How could that possibly be a matter of serious concern? Surely it's the responsibility of an organisation like Amnesty, or indeed it's everybody's right, to challenge a decision that they believe to be unjust and unlawful and to take appropriate steps to do that. We weren't able to announce, for instance, when that decision was made that we're heading to the High Court because the law is so utterly opaque and ridiculous that it's not immediately clear on what basis So was there a semantic difference there? Because my recollection, and correct me if I'm wrong, was that at the time, perhaps for that very reason, that, that, that your response and Amnesty's response was, we will, not, we will not be giving back this money. It wasn't, we will see you in court. We said, we'll com- we will not comply with this instruction and we will challenge it by all appropriate means available to us. Now, the law is so weird that one of the hurdles we had to jump over in the first instance was, on what basis can we go to court? Because funnily enough, SIPO's decisions or instructions have no legal standing. SIPO can't enforce any of their instructions or decisions on anybody. So it's not immediately clear then on what basis can you go into court. So we had to get extensive legal opinion before it was clear to us that we had a standing upon which we could go into court and assert that the decision was unjust and unlawful and should be overturned. Um, So it took some time to be able to do that. We were very clear we will not comply with this instruction. We will challenge it by all appropriate means. Um, that's a, that's a, a completely reasonable thing that, for people to do. I think a lot of the criticisms that Am- Amnesty and Colm got uh, at the time was from people who were basically on the same side as they were in the uh, in the abortion referendum. So a lot of people on the repeal side, notwithstanding the the legal intricacies of the and the legal uncertainties of uh, of the situation as was then presented, viewed it to be. And uh, an enormously unwise move politically for one of the main repeal campaigning organisations to say, no, we don't like the law and therefore we're not going to obey it as it was. Uh, but is this, was, a, was, is this a semantic sorry, difference sorry, though? Sorry, no, 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 hang, hang on a second that, now. That we, in, we, we, in, we suddenly, in the political we, debate we, Pat, at the time. Pat, we, we suddenly jumped from, from me pointing out why I had a concern about some of the media commentary on this to looking at what other civil society actors may or may, may not, not have been saying. My point is that I think that Whenever we're commenting on issues like this, we have a responsibility to really stand back, take a deep breath and try and understand what might be happening before we rush to judgment. And I do think perhaps in the particularly heated environment at the time, there was a little bit of an unthinking rush to judgment and some, some, some poor thinking was applied to what might have been happening in the background. And I include the media in that. And that's, I'm not looking to have a lash at anybody. I just think it was unfortunate and, and, and unhelpful. In terms of where other things were at, it's very, very clear now, as we said at the time, that this investigation was the result of politically motivated complaints from third parties. Effectively, that people who wanted to undermine Amnesty's engagement on the abortion issue sought to use this extraordinarily poorly constructed law to attack and undermine us. That's what they did. Uh, And it was very clear to us that that was going to continue all the way through up to and beyond the referendum. So from a, if you want to talk about a political strategy perspective, from a From a political perspective, it was really important for us that we challenge that, name that, and then seek to move it to one side, particularly for the period of the referendum. That's another reason why the legal challenge was also incredibly important. I want to finish up with just one very different question, if you wouldn't mind, Colm. I was looking at your uh, post on Twitter yesterday and over the the last couple of days, and there was some discussion about the impending papal visit, which we haven't discussed at all in this context over the last few weeks. But these events do have political consequences and political ramifications, and there's no doubt that the 1979 papal visit had political ramifications in in the Ireland of the 1980s. And you have a very particular perspective of this, that events around that time Time really led to your your life as a as a political activist and, and, and social activist. What do you think we should we make of what's going to happen on the twenty fifth of August? Do you know? I don't know. My my first instinct when 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 I uh, 
you know, thought about that visit was a very good idea not to be in the country uh, because I was just going to find it particularly galling uh, to be here. And that's not because I oppose Pope Francis or much of what he stands for. I actually really admire many of the things that he says. Uh, I really admire many of the principles that the the institution, the religion that he that he heads is founded upon. I think they're profoundly important principles. Um, but I, I think for many of us who 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 suffered appallingly um, and because of the conduct of his predecessors and of his institution, um, to be here and to see all of that lost over. And, and more importantly, I suppose, there's an increasing sense that when he gets here, he's going to do the usual thing of have a having a private meeting with a group of survivors of sexual abuse and there'll be an expression of regret and sorrow about the hurt that people experienced afterwards and then we'll all move on and should that's that box ticked and we're dealt with is, is particularly nauseating for, for, for people like me and many others. I mean, the simple fact is the Vatican, no pope, including this pope, has ever acknowledged the simple proven fact that the Vatican orchestrated and facilitated the cover-up of the rape and abuse of hundreds of thousands of children at the global level. It's never been acknowledged, never mind apologised for. And yet everywhere a pope, where a Pope goes, we get this breathless adoration of people going, Aperture, isn't he great? And didn't he say sorry? He hasn't said sorry. Now, I've no desire to see Pope Francis uh, humble or humiliate himself. I've no desire to see Benedict do it, or indeed John Paul II, who I sued in an effort to get him to tell the truth, to do it either. But a simple acknowledgement of the truth is important. And it's important if we're, t- if we're to be able to believe that that institution has changed and, and, and that children, not necessarily in this country, but in some of the most disadvantaged parts of the world, over whom it has extraordinary power and control, are safe. And we don't know that. I mean, uh, Pope, Pope Francis, there's a Cardinal Pell from, from, from Sydney is now before the Australian courts facing criminal charges on allegations that he sexually assaulted minors. Uh, it was well known and well alleged that he had been involved in covers up in the Archdiocese of Sydney and, and, and really badly mismanaged that. Um, since 2003, under, under uh, Cardinal Ratzinger as he was and became Pope Benedict, it's been a requirement that any, any, any incident of a, an allegation of abuse against a priest or cleric has to be reported to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the Vatican Department uh, that oversees these issues, and it will decide what happens next. So, surely... <laughs> concerns about Cardinal Pell would have been notified to the Vatican, notified to the Vatican and to that department. It's one of the most powerful departments in the Vatican. When Pope Francis became Pope, he took Cardinal Pell from Sydney and made him the third most powerful person in the Vatican. When Pope Francis went to Chile last year, uh, a victim spoke out there. What did Pope Francis do? He attacked the integrity of the victims. And so dismissed I think he them. withdrew that and apologised for it. He withdrew it and apologised for it afterwards when it went badly wrong for him and there was public uproar. And now we've had, I think, 30 bishops resign uh, and the Pope acknowledge failures of the, of, the, of, the, of the church in Chile. So as much as I admire, and I genuinely do admire much of what Pope Francis has to say on, on social justice issues, particularly around poverty, around refugees, around migration, he says some really important things. Uh, um, his failure to properly deal with this issue, his failure to tell the truth, his failure to stand for justice on these issues is, is an extraordinary stain on him on his institution and on his own standing, I think, personally. Uh, and I think when he comes to Ireland, it's going to be enormously painful for an awful lot of people to stand on the margins uh, and watch the kind of circus that's likely to play out around these specific issues. So I think that's going to be challenging. When, when Pope, Pope John Paul uh, the, the II was here in 1979, I was 13 years of age. And, and two of my siblings managed to go and see him. I didn't. And I remember being a little bit disappointed. 
years later, I remember reading Alison O'Connor's uh, uh, book about about Father Sean Fortune, um, about how he was in in the in the Phoenix Park with a group of Boy Scouts um, for the Papal Mass, and then finding out some years later, so uh, um, that Sean Fortune, whilst training as a seminarian in St Peter's College in Wexford, had abused a group of Boy Scouts whilst a seminarian. These complaints were then this was. This abuse was notified to the to the church authorities and the scouts. The scouts barred him for life and the church ordained him a priest. And there he was in 1979 as a priest with a group of scouts in the Phoenix Park. And a year later, he raped me for the first time at the age of 14 and that continued for three years. So, you know, for somebody like me, frankly, hearing John Paul II tell the young people of Ireland that he loved them in 1979 is really, really tough. And uh, I, I think that um, it's been a very long time since I've gotten emotional about all of this, quite frankly, because I really have moved very much past uh, 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 much of this. But wh- what I'm stuck with now is I'm remembering people like Peter Fitzpatrick, <clears throat> another victim of Sean Fortunes, who at 23 years of age shot himself in the chest with a shotgun and sitting down with his parents to talk to them about that in 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 2001 as we sought to reveal what had happened at the Diocese of Ferns and in, in the wider Irish church. I'm thinking about a number of other young men who I know who are victims of his who committed suicide. I'm thinking about the spate of suicides that occurred after suing the Pope Erd uh, uh, here in Ireland in, in Escorthy in the Diocese of Ferns. Of the people that I know have ended their lives uh, because of the harm that was done to them by priests, yes, but facilitated by the, the, the bishops and the institution of the church by the Vatican and, and whose crimes were covered up by the Vatican. Now, I'm thinking of the tens of thousands in this, uh, of people in this country who will watch this visit with all of that hurt very, very much present. And I think what's critically important and I think what we owe, what Irish society owes, frankly, people like me and what we owe each other in this is to make sure that we are not pushed aside because we need this visit to be clean and tidy and nice and we all want everything to be okay because that's the motivation that allowed all of this to happen in the first place. Colin McGowan, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks also to Liz and to Pat. And that is it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and to our engineer JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be, including these days uh, Google Podcasts as well. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are very welcome and you can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.